We're in Hebrews chapter 12. We've been doing a series on great New Testament texts, and I consider this one of them, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me begin by saying, obviously, chapter 12 follows chapter 11. Chapter 11 is called the Hall of Fame chapter in the New Testament, where it lists 18 particular individuals that by faith conquered. They were obedient to God's revelation to them, and the Bible tells us they were overcomers in the circumstances that they found themselves in. And chapter 12 starts off reminding us, really, you could say that we're in a race. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, we also, comparing us, linking us back to those in chapter 11, we also are running a race. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witness, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name Jesper Olson. Jesper Olson did something that no man in the history of the world has ever done. On October 23, 2005, Jesper Olson, who is a Danish ultra-distance runner, did something no one in history has ever done. He completed the last leg of his around-the-world run as he crossed the finish line at the observatory in Greenwich, England. It took him 661 days, almost two years. And he covered 26,232 kilometers, or in other words, 16,300 miles. He ran across every continent in the world other than Antarctica. So he's the first man that has run across or run around the world. And in that 16,300-mile run, he faced many challenges, and it was quite an adventure. He's the first man to complete the run across the continent. Now get this. He averaged 500 miles a week. In other words, he ran between three and four marathons. A marathon is 26 miles. He ran between three and four marathons every single day for almost two years without injury. That's unheard of. It's unbelievable almost. He is truly a world-class athlete. And there's nobody going to argue that. And it took him two years to run across all the continents. We think of Jesper Olsen as a super ultra-marathon runner, certainly. But we're in a race as well. Every one of us who are believers here today, we're in a race, and maybe we would say a far more important race. The race that we are in, Jesus Christ has also run. He is the author and finisher. He is the champion of our race. He sets the example for us. And so here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're challenged about having an enduring faith. 
Not a faith that gives up, not a faith that faints, not a faith that drops out of the race, but an enduring faith. He tells us some things here, and I want to draw your attention to them via the outline and my message of what he's telling us to do. First of all, in verse 1, he says, we must forsake all encumbrances. We must forsake all encumbrances. Now, the image here is very clear. The imagery is that of a foot race. And they were common in the ancient world. Paul often used athletic illustrations. And this is the imagery of a foot race before a stadium full of those who comprise this, as he calls it, a great cloud of witnesses. Great cloud is sometimes used in ancient literature to describe an innumerable host. Like a great cloud of soldiers come descending down from the mountains in an attack. But here is a great cloud of witnesses, and we picture them in a stadium observing this race. And there are 18 different heroes mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter preceding this. And God used them because they acted in faith. They acted in obedience. By the way, those two words are used interchangeably in the New Testament literature. If we believe God, we obey God. Faith prompts obedience. So they acted in faith. They acted in obedience to God's commands. Now, we can't see them. None of us can peer past the heavens and and see that great cloud of witnesses in heaven. We can't see them, and we're not told if they can see us. We're not told that. By the way, the word witness that's used here is the Greek word martyr. What is a martyr? A martyr means one who testifies. That's literally what it means. By their race, by their life, by their running in obedience to God's command, they are testifying to us that you can live the Christian life. You can finish and receive a prize. You can run the Christian life for God's glory. That's what they're testifying to us about. Most likely, they're probably not watching us because I think if the saints from heaven could look down on earth, they would see a lot of things that we can't imagine people in heaven looking upon. So maybe they can't see us, but they are a witness to us. We've observed their race, we've read about their race, we've heard the story of their lives, and they inspire us. That's the idea that we get right here. We've observed their race, we've observed their life, and so we realize if they can do it, and if Jesus Christ could set the example, we too can do it. Now, there are a lot of different types of races. We all understand that. There are short sprints. And there are long marathons. And then there are ultra-long races. And the Christian life, if you're going to compare it, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not over in a few moments. It's a lifetime run. It's a lifetime race. And that's why he says, uh, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance. In the old King James, I think it says patience. Let us run with an idea that we're never going to give up. We're not going to quit. Let us run with endurance. And it takes endurance to run that kind of race. We should take heart. We should be heartened to know that there is a stadium, that there is an amphitheater full of 
saints who have run before us that are waiting for us to arrive in glory to receive our reward. We should be excited about that prospect of crossing the finish line and coming into their presence as well as the Lord's. I learned fairly early in my life that I'm probably not an exceptional athlete at any sport. I learned that well. Part of it is because I grew up on a farm, nine children, and we lived a long ways from town. And really, you forge the, the skills for team sports usually early in life by participating in little league or soccer leagues or football leagues. And, and my dad never allowed us to do any of those. First of all, it was too far away, and we had too much to do on the farm. So I didn't forge some of those skills. Now, I love sports and still enjoy them to this very day. So as I got older and got out on my own, I began to participate more in individual sports and still enjoy them. Like many farm kids, I just didn't have that same opportunity. One of the things that I learned that I was pretty good at was running. And I ran with a number of people here in the church. So I started entering races. I ran on many different 10Ks. I ran some half marathons. And of course, everybody out here, you got to at least run it once. I ran it a number of times, but I ran the Boulder Boulder. It's just a fun, exciting race. It's just fun. That's all there is. They have got it down to a science and a lot of people participate in it. So I ran the Boulder Boulder a number of times. And if you've run the Boulder Boulder or have even watched it, you know that it ends up at Folsom Stadium where the CU Buffs play. There's cameras up above. And, and so when you come into the stadium, it was always thrilling for me because 50,000 of my favorite fans were there cheering me on. They're cheering, the cameras are rolling, and you pick up the pace, you lift your knees, you smile, you know, you poke your chest out because you want to finish well because people are watching. Now, maybe they weren't really cheering me on. Maybe they were just waiting for the last runners to come in so they could go home. I don't know. But I always thought that they were cheering me on. We do our best when people we realize are cheering us on and watching and we realize we're going to receive some kind of a reward. And that's the context here, that we're running a race and the reward is great. The finish line is up ahead and we're going to receive, well done, my good and faithful servant, commendation someday. So we run our best. What else does he tell us here He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, ensnares us. Now, weights are an important part of training. But when it comes to the real race, the weights are set aside. You don't see somebody doing a sprint with dumbbells in their hand. They may use dumbbells as they train on every sport, whether it's soccer or football, certainly, or basketball or whatever it is. They use weights to build muscle, to train. But they set the weights aside when the race or the activity or the competition begins. Runners don't sprint with weights. Many years ago, I used to go on my lunch hour to the uh, Foothills Pool over on Kipling. 
and I would swim laps on my lunch hour. And every once in a while, the Bear Creek swim team would come in, and they too would swim laps. It's a big pool with many lanes. And they would come in, and they would often wear their blue jeans into the pool. And after seeing that, I said, hey, what's the deal with the blue jeans? You know, uh, most of those guys were wearing Speedos. And they said, oh, it's our coach's thing, you know. Blue jeans get really heavy in the water, and so they slow us down. It makes us kick a bunch harder, and it makes us feel like we're motorboats when we are in competition, when we're not wearing our blue jeans in the water. So I get it. They wore their blue jeans when they were swimming in practice, but they certainly didn't wear them in the competition because weights are for training, but they're not for the race. Now, notice he differentiates. He says, let us lay aside every weight. And then he says, and sin, and the sins. Weights are one thing. And by the way, legitimate things can become weights. Legitimate things can become weight. In other words, legitimate things can weigh us down. Love of ease. Things like job security. Enjoyment of family, pleasurable pastime. You can think of all kinds of things that are not necessarily sinful. They're legitimate, but they can become weights when we encumber our life with them and we have no time for serving God, no time for following God. Then those weights become really sins. So the Christian life is more than just choosing between evil and good. Really, the Christian life is choosing between that which is good and that which is best. And maybe that's how we would define weights. This is not necessarily sinful, but it's slowing me down, and it's keeping me from being all that I can be. I'm not really choosing the very best for my Christian experience. So I'm going to say no to some of those things. But he goes on to say, Lay aside every weight and the sin. I have to ask you, is there a sin that is controlling you? Is there a sin in your life that is ensnaring you? You get the picture here. Ensnaring is like being caught in a trap, being tangled up in the seaweed. Something that is pulling you down. Are there sins in your life that are pulling you down, ensnaring you, keeping you from running the race, grounding you, maybe we would say? Keep you from either coming to Christ. I may be speaking to someone today that has a sin in their life that you can't imagine your life without that sin because you take such pleasure in it. And it's kept you from coming to Christ as Savior. Maybe there's some people here today who are Christians, but there is a besetting sin in your life that kind of controls you and and often dominates your life. And that could be something external, an external vice like cigarettes or alcohol or misuse of prescription drugs. It could be something that's an entrenched habit like swearing or lying or bitterness or pornography. And it's keeping you from being what God wants you to be, serving him. And Christ can give you victory 
He can give you victory over sin and certainly over its consequences, but we must be willing to do exactly what it says here. Let us lay aside. In other words, let us put it off. If we put it in biblical vernacular, let us repent of those things. That doesn't mean we have the power to say no to all of them, but we can repent of them, and God gives us the power to change. So those are not life-dominating sins. Because the Christian life is a formidable course that we're on. It's a formidable course causing fatigue and discouragement. That's why he says, what does he say here? Let us. Do you notice that? We're not tricked into this race. We're not trapped into running this race. He encourages us to run this race. Let us run this race. We run voluntarily. Jesus doesn't stand at the starting line and say, go or run. No, that's not the picture at all. He runs with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. He says, let us run together. He shows us how to run the race. He accompanies us in the race. He enables us to run the race. Let us run. He accompanies us. So God encourages all, but he coerces none. We have to say, this is a race worth running. We have to volunteer to run this race. Let us run. Being passive. Nobody ever won a race or even maybe even entered a race who was passive. The idea is active. We make up our mind. We are going to run this race. We are going to finish the course that God has given to us for his glory. The first thing we see in verse 1 is we must forsake all encumbrances. Look in verse 2. He says, we must focus on our Savior. Looking unto Jesus, it says. Looking unto Jesus. That Greek phrase is only used once in the New Testament, and that's right here. And it is the idea, understood, it, is, it means to look away from everything else and look only at the object of Jesus Christ. It is the idea of focusing on Christ. That's how we successfully run the Christian life. Think of a horse with blinders on it. They put blinders on the sides of the eyes of horses so they're not looking off into the field. They're not getting distracted by all the things that are going on around the horse. They put blinders on it. That's really the idea right here. Focus on Jesus. Look straight ahead. Look at the finish line. Look at the stadium. Look at those who've run before you. We must focus on our Savior. He is the starter, it says, and the finisher of the race. He is the pioneer and the perfecter. He is the architect of this race. He designed the race and he finished the race. He didn't just design it and say, now go run. He ran the race himself and he finished well. He finished completely the work that God had given him to do. John chapter 17, verse 4, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says this, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. We want to be able to say that. God, I've done what you've called me to do. You've heard me say success in life 
is not the bank account, not the house, not any of those material things. Success in life is finding, following, and fulfilling the will of God for you. Finding, following, and fulfilling the will of God. We want to be able to say, I ran the race that you gave me to do. I focused on on Christ my Savior. I finished the race. Now I receive my reward. Our Lord, what does it say here? Focused on the joy that was set before him. That wasn't his earthly sojourn. It certainly wasn't Passion Week, the last week of his life, because it goes on to say, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In other words, the joy was after that. The joy was coming, and he had to get through the cross. He had to get through the difficult periods of rejection. So for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despised the shame, but he endured it. The shame of of the 40 lashes across his back that left his body in ribbons. The crown of thorns that was pressed into his skull and the spittle in his face and the punches and the beard pulling and then carrying the cross and being nailed to the cross and being stripped naked and hung up before all the passerby. That was shameful. It was shameful for the Son of God to endure this from his very own creatures that he had made. He endured the shame for the joy that came at the end of that, that he would purchase our salvation. He would bring us into glory someday. He endured the shame, despising it to purchase our salvation, anticipating the reward that would someday come from his Father as he sat at the right hand of the Father. God receiving him into glory in honoring him for his great work. So I have to ask you, is this Savior, your Savior, your Lord? He did it for you. He did it for me. He endured it all. The shame, the suffering, all to purchase our salvation so we might have redemption. Have you received that redemption? Have you been forgiven? Jesus said you must be born again. So if you haven't been born again, you haven't received it. George Barna, in Current Thoughts and Trends, said this, Born-again adults in America spend an average of seven times more hours each week watching television than they do participating in spiritual pursuits, such as Bible reading, prayer, and worship. Seven times more. They spend roughly twice as much money on entertainment as they donate to their church. They spend more time surfing the internet than they do conversing with God in prayer. If that is true, and it probably is for Christianity in general, then we're really not focusing on our Savior. We're focusing on all the distractions that are around us. So number two, we must focus on our Savior. And third, we must finish despite the difficulties. The last part of verse 2 says, He endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls. So he exhorts us. We must finish despite the difficulties. The Bible is realistic in saying there are difficulties. There are hurdles. We have to overcome them. Considering Christ, focusing on Christ, turning away from everything else, focusing on Christ keeps you from turning your back on God or dropping out of the race. During times of trials, that's what he's describing here. During times of trials, it's easy to question, what is God doing? What is God doing in my life? I don't, I don't get it. I don't follow. I'm not tracking with him. This is not what I expected when I yielded myself to the Lord. So during times of trials, it's easy to question, what is God doing? And we have to understand, and I think we do, that our Lord disciplines true believers to correct them and to mature them. By the way, every time that we get disciplined or we go through a struggle, it isn't because we're living in disobedience. It's just part of the maturation process of God developing us and maturing us and allowing the virtues that he finds so important to develop in our life. And they can only come through trials. We are not to despise his working in our lives when we go through trials. We can't question him. Some believers get discouraged thinking they're the only ones that face such difficulties. But the Bible reminds us, there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. Other people have faced very similar circumstances, not identical, but very similar circumstances, very similar trial. There is no trial that hath taken you but is common to other Christians, he tells us. So we're not alone. It's often said when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But a more biblical rendering would be when we come to the end of ourselves, real ministry begins. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, that's when we rely upon the Holy Spirit. Lord, I have no more strength. I don't have any more endurance. I don't even have the will. So, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit's infusion of strength and grace into my life so I can finish my race in a pleasing way to you. We look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because then we rely upon the Spirit. He was bruised and brought healing. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He is risen and brings power. The world can't understand him. Scholars can't explain him. Our leaders can't ignore him. Rome couldn't kill him. The grave couldn't keep him. That's our Savior. His ways are right. His word is eternal. His will is perfect for us. He is my Redeemer, He is my guide, and as the Lord, He rules my life. I serve Him because His bond is love and His burden is light. He is the wisdom of the ages. 
He is the ancient of days. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He will never leave me or mislead me. And when I fall, he lifts me up. When I fail, he forgives me. When I'm hurt, he heals me. When I am hungry, he feeds me. When I face trials, he's there with me. When I face death, he carries me home. God is in control, and all is well with our soul. Let's run the race with endurance, with patience. Let's pray together right now. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture that encourages us because every person of any age faces trials and faces struggles and, and at times gets discouraged with the personal problems that they're going through or the circumstances of life. But Lord, we look to you, we focus on you, we consider you as it says here. We turn away from everything else. We turn away from our problems. We turn away from other runners. And we turn to you. And we ask for the Holy Spirit's enablement that we might not be ashamed when we pass from this world into the next because we've dropped out of the race or we've held on to our sin instead of shedding the weights and sins that become encumbrances to us. So help us, Lord, as we consider these verses today, that we might run the race that you set before us with great patience, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of this race. While our heads are bowed, maybe there's someone that is here this morning and you really don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. That isn't, that isn't a bad thing to come into the room with or into the service with this morning, but it would be a shameful thing to leave in that same condition. If you don't know Christ, that's part of the reason our church exists, is to proclaim Christ to those that don't know Him. And you can know Him today by just crying out from your heart and your mind to the Lord and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin will take me to hell. But I turn to you and ask for forgiveness. Save me. That's all it takes. A sincere prayer of a broken, contrite sinner. If you do that today, Jesus will receive you. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I know Christ, I'm sure of that. But there's some encumbrances that are pulling me down. And I need to choose what is best, not just that which is decent or good, but really that which is best. And so today I'm making decisions that I believe will honor the Lord and help me run the race for His glory. Father... Again, we commit our fellowship, 
our body of believers right here to you and ask that you will work in all of our lives, drawing us closer to yourself and even those that maybe don't know you, that today would be their day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.